Hello, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Sam Livingstone, head of data science at Jupiter Asset Management. Sam has built the team to six FTEs comprising of both data scientists and data engineers. Sam and his team implemented a data science studio platform and built out an Azure cloud stack at Jupiter. On this episode, Sam talks about use cases, long only versus intraday strategy, geolocation, ESG, web crawl data uses, also a focus on US election data, as well as data that corporates are using today. He also discusses blending data sets in his predictions. Please enjoy this dialogue between Sam and your host, Emmett Kilduff. Sam, good day. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Sam, I'm going to jump straight in. What do you think are the best use cases of data that you've seen that you're aware of? There are a number of good use cases. I think the landscape has changed somewhat in the last three to five years. I think historically, you could go and buy a single data set. You could research it. You could find some alpha. You could provide those alpha signals to either a quantitative desk or a fundamental desk, and they could consume it. And I think the best use case of data I'm seeing now is where they're being blended. So you're not just looking at credit card data. You're not just looking at geolocation. You're starting to overlay and overlap and consider lots of different cases as if they were traffic light signals. And I've seen a few cases of that where you start looking at weather plus geolocation plus pricing. And rather than just looking at all those things independently, you're blending them together to see, say, how a particular restaurant is performing or a a particular brand within that restaurant is performing. Is it difficult to start to blend those data sets? I mean, I sort of leading question, but what are your thoughts? No, it's very relevant. And I think it continues to be a problem or challenge for everyone on the spectrum from someone just tickling their toes into alternative data and people who've been doing this for a decade is the ability to blend and the reference component. I know you you guys work closely with FISD, as do we, in trying to find ways to standardize the things that don't create alpha, but trying to get people to have accurate reference data at the vendor level is challenging enough to try and then blend them across multiple different identifiers. It's the boring part of data science. It's the 80% of data cleansing. Are they using ISINs? Are they using QSIPs? Are they using CDOs? Does the CDO have a check digit? It's the, uh, the boring end of data, unfortunately, but it is the bit that continues to be challenging. And are there specific sectors or, or groups within Jupiter that are getting the most use out of the data? I always say internally, we really have three different groups of internal clients. You have the the fund managers who are interested. They think what you're doing is is novel. But at the moment, they're, they're engaging slightly arm's reach. They're kind of listening and watching, but they're slightly skeptical and not terribly engaging. The second group are all over it. They want to know every data set you're getting. Can we have it tomorrow? I know it's five terabytes, but can I have it in an hour? And then you've got the third group, which is a blend of those two. They're really keen to be engaged. They're really skeptical about how well it's going to work. They provide clear hypotheses. They know how the data can be used. And it's slowly about merging them all across that third group. So the first group get involved because of FOMO. The second group, you kind of have to slow down slightly. And then the third group are your sort of perfect clients. And they're the ones who will sit down with you. You are essentially an extension to the desk. They will explain to you exactly how they're thinking about a stock or a group of stocks or a theme. And then you go away with the knowledge that we have and curate the data that we need or go and buy it. Jupiter Asset Management clearly has a long-term investment horizon. And sometimes old data has got a bad name for just being relevant to very short-term use cases. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, it is a really strong message that I, uh, I had before joining Jupiter was that we're not a hedge fund. We're not going to swap a position by 50 bucks a week before the print to, to take advantage of some, some information. And what that means is it's about having breadth as well as just depth and a particular signal. So what they need to do is they need to have a number of different signals or traffic lights to help them better understand the impacts of a particular name or group of names. And it's about what I say internally about creating data citizens. It's about making better data-driven decisions by being data citizens. If we're looking at a data set, one we've loaded recently is about 40 terabytes. If you wanted to provide that to a traditional bottom-up fund manager in days gone by, it's just impossible. They can't access it. But if there is a small slither that they know is particularly important to the names they're looking at, they know that it tracks a KPI well, our job is to provide a traffic light. This is good. This is bad. This is roughly where it usually is. And that is, I would say, the, probably the biggest difference. It's not about instantaneous reaction to a piece of information. It's about the careful consideration of the long-term impact of lots of different things at once. And people get scared and don't like this particular phrase, but it's mosaic theory. It's having the ability to see things better. And I always use the analogy of driving a car by looking through the rear view mirror. Like if you don't have these data sets, you're basically waiting for something to happen and then you react to it. If you have these different orthogonalized data sets, you can unmiss the front window, unmiss the side window, get your side mirrors back. And it gives you those additional data points to enable you to see whether you're going uphill, downhill, you're approaching a roundabout, whatever it happens to be. And because of that long-term investment horizon, you don't need the data intraday or, or probably daily necessarily. Um, does that change the dynamic that you would have with vendors? Yes, it does. And I think it's it's a, an area where I'd say the more sophisticated vendors are understanding. They will say, we recognize that you need the daily data, maybe for, maybe for statistical purposes, but you can maybe receive it with a lag. Because if we receive something today for yesterday, we're not necessarily going to react to it immediately anyway. So it does give them the ability to almost tier clients in some ways, which means that the price point can change. And I think that is very beneficial to the market as a whole in understanding you have different types of client. Are vendors becoming more sophisticated and thoughtful over the years? I would say on average they are. There are still a few of the newbies that come that have awesome data sets. It concerns me that they are going through the, we think it's worth four billion pounds and you say well lots of people have thought that in the past and it quickly decays and they go no we've got two clients that are paying that amount we don't want to change it and you go okay come and talk to me in a year's time when you've rationalized the price point but there are others who absolutely get the nature of the different businesses we're not a two and twenty we don't have that type of pricing mechanism and they need to respond to that if they want to sell to traditional predominantly long only asset managers one of the categories that's seen a lot more attention this year certainly from eagle office perspective is geolocation data because of COVID-19, um, are you seeing a lot of your internal stakeholders and clients uh, request that type of data? Yes, and I don't want to say there's any silver lining to COVID-19 because there isn't really, but people's understanding that traditional data metrics don't mean much in some cases. The PMI is horrific and it's the lowest it's ever been. Okay, well, we know that. What, what else is going on? So the introduction to type one clients, things like geolocation makes sense longitude and latitude, being able to plot it quite quickly and say, here is a data point moving, you understand how this works. And I think the intuition around how it would work is also straightforward. So things like credit card transaction data is obvious. You go and spend money, that's a revenue point. People are going into a shop. If you assume they're spending roughly the same amount, more people in a shop is a good thing. So one, it's easy to convert into academic intuition for them so they understand why that data point is relevant. And two, because of them being stuck at home, looking at screens all day, they do see the power in understanding how movement is important. 
And then you can always sort of tell them about the jiggery pokery that some companies do where they fill lorries with nothing and drive around to make it look like they're moving around. So there's always caveats to the power of these data sets, but you then start talking about polygon mapping and you lose them. So you, there's there's a point of interest, uh, geolocation being one of the ones, branding being another one that's quite high on the list at the moment. Sticking with geolocation for the moment, which of your sector teams are asking for that data the most? Is it real estate? Is it retail? Well, the way that we, uh, the way that the books are built here is usually region, strategy type, or style. So we might have like a global value or a UK growth. So we don't, for the best part, have you know a TMT team or a CME team, which actually makes life easier because there's always some data set that's useful to them. If you're a global absolute return, it means you're interested in everything. We we both know that consumer data sets tend to be the most polished and the easiest to understand and consume. So the geolocation data actually that we were looking at initially was most of most interest to our multi-asset team, which was quite interesting to me, having not done a lot of work with multi-asset in the past. It was really, really interesting to get their insight. And they're data hungry. They absolutely love data. So for me to be able to provide those sort of data points for that team, it was it was an interesting experience for the team as well. And I think you said branding, is that right? Yeah. Why is that sort of a particular momentum right now? ESG is, is terribly important to Jupiter. When I was at Schroeder's, I helped build their ESG, their quantitative ESG fund. So it's always been something that's important to me as well. And that's an area that we have been, as a team, very involved with our CIO office and our governance sustainability team. We really are helping integrate quantitatively all the various metrics. And I think brand perception and understanding the S in ESG is empowered by the branding component. And it helps you understand how people feel about what certain brands are doing or not doing. And, and importantly, whether if they're doing something that's positive, if it's being reflected, or if they're doing something negative, but they take short-term action to rectify it, whether it's actually rectified in the data. And it gives you a direct port into what people are, are genuinely thinking. Because things like social media data, it, it's useful, but people have a persona. If you call someone up and ask them their actual opinion and they're anonymized, they'll usually tell you the truth. I always call it the four-point paradox. It's before and after, the view is very different. Social media, it's what people want to be seen to be saying sometimes. Whereas with the brand level data, you, you tend to be able to have a slightly more, they tend to be able to have a slightly more honest conversation. On ESG, we're seeing a lot of clients um, want to get access to the underlying data so they can create their own factors and scores as opposed to just take an ESG feed from an MSCI or any of the other sort of big obvious vendors. Is that consistent with your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there are a number of very good ESG vendors. And I think in some cases, breaking that down, you have two types, generally speaking. You've got the fast moving and the slow moving. The slow moving ESG tends to be updated yearly or, or, or biannually. And fast moving tends to use some application of machine learning to scrape new sources to kind of understand instantaneous movements. Using just one source without really digging in to understand how they're applying it is okay. It's, it's a starting point. But I think for people who truly want to integrate ESG into their process, be it to make changes to their portfolio or just to understand how their portfolio looks, um, you really have to go, go down to the raw level. One of the vendors we have has 3,500 factors that we load. So we've, we've done a number of exploratory data analysis pieces to ensure that those factors are consistent across time, that when models have changed, don't see the sudden jump in scores. And you can't do any of that if you're just consuming pillar-level aggregated numbers. Is there an example you can talk about regarding ESG of how it's actually gave a red flag to a particular company? There's really three ways of applying ESG data. The first one is about engagement with the company. So 
I think what some companies do incorrectly, and I think Jupiter does t- terribly well, is they use the ESG store as an absolute. Well, not your last conference, but the conference before, you had a gent from JP Morgan who actually presented on the lack of correlation across ESG providers. So if you start that as a point that they don't tend to be terribly correlated, you instantaneously are in a, a slightly murky world. So if you go to a, a company for which you have a significant holding and you say to them, look, there's a problem. This is saying that you're not doing something. Their response can be, gosh, we actually are, but we're not disclosing it. Well, that, that's something they should do. What could be, we didn't realize that was important. Or we disagree with the with the perception of the risk that that exposure has. But it creates a dialogue where you can, as custodians of capital, go and make sure you're effectively managing. The second way that people tend to use it is usually in just screens. So you, it could be a client-led engagement, or it could be as part of a, a signatory that you've signed up to, but it could be uh, non-sustainable palm oil, or it could be nuclear weapons. It could be something like that. Th- those sort of hard exclusions, I think, are the greenwashing old ESG of the past. It's where people wanted to be seen to be doing something, so they just cut down the universe and carried on the same way. And then the third version is genuine integration. It's where you are sincerely considering all the different factors. So at Jupiter, we've developed something called ESG Hub, which is a Python-generated web app that integrates all our holdings data across three different ESG providers. And so they can go in, we have a portfolio manager view, an analyst view, and a company-wide view. And at the click of a few buttons, they can slice and dice our universe in any way they see fit to understand our exposure to certain components. And the version we're working on now is where we can actually jitter the beaters to be able to change a particular score. So let's say someone says water scarcity is important, but you disagree, you might want to assign 75% weight to that particular score just to see how it would change. It's never going to be reported in that manner, but it will be it will empower the fund manager and analyst to think more deeply about ESG and their names. So ESG is definitely something very topical at the moment for us and a lot of our listeners. Um, all their key topics would be using data for looking to the US election, to think about corporate defaults, uh, which will come on next year, to think about obviously reopening of the economies are fortunately closing down again, depending on the timing. Um, are any of those themes, things you're working on uh, of interest to your colleagues? Yeah, the US election's uh, hugely topical. And we actually have a team hackathon next Friday. So what we tend to do is we take the Friday afternoon to go into pure R&D mode. Last time we were remote, actually, our CTO, Paul K said, I'll tell you what, I'll send everyone a pizza. And he did. He, he stuck to his word. Every single person got a pizza sent to their home. We stuck Zoom on and we spent the whole day working on something. In that case, it was a particular stock name that we wanted to examine for a fund manager. But next Friday, it's going to be on US elections. So it's what can we scrape? What can we acquire? How can we sort of combine this into a useful dashboard to help people track what's going on? And then the next version will be how can we model that effectively? Because if you're looking at the standard providers, most of them are pointing to a minor Biden win. But there are a lot that are saying there's a strong Trump win. So we want to be able to provide all all those various data points to just uh, enable fund managers to kind of keep a track on it. Great. And uh, so the, predominantly you'll be using web crawling to source data for that. Is that right? Yeah, predominantly web crawling. Web crawling and some social media related items that we're going to be going to be looking at. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, defaults. Is that an area that you're looking at? Yep. So that's, again, that's usually consuming data through public sources versus well, there's, there's two angles we're looking at that. One is through the standard fundamental data to see about things like accruals. So that's sort of standard quant, I would say. And then from a slightly more alternative sense, it's, it's looking at what the governments are providing. The US government website, there's a page that tells you how often a particular page is being tracked. And there's a page that relates 
particularly to corporate defaults. So if you see that spiking, there's these, again, it's a traffic light system. There's not going to be a single source of deep alpha where you're going to say, this is going to predict the election. Because if you believe that, then you should be in a straitjacket. What you're going to have is 15 or 16 of those that just glow amber or red or green, according to what we think is going to happen. Mm. Coming back to your hackathon, um, getting the right people to work on this data, there's different types of people, right? There's sort of data geeks and there's who can actually converse with your colleagues around the firm. And if you don't have that, then all the data in the world will be irrelevant. How do you break down your team and how do you hire the right people? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think a lot of the data science proposition, people just say, okay, go get a maths PhD. And then they've solved the talent side. We always break it down into talent, tech, and data. And the talent side is always the most challenging. And what they end up doing is saying, we just get really smart people, problem solved. And the approach we've taken with uh, Data Science of Jupiter has been really neurodiversity. It's making sure that you're making sure that people are coming from different backgrounds, from different schools. We don't actually have one person with the same degree in the team. So we've got CompSci. We had someone who did AI in the 90s. We've got an economist. We've got a maths. We've got a neuroscientist. And then we've got a financial econometrician. So we disagree a lot. But it's healthy disagreement, not you're wrong, this is why I'm right. It's, oh, that's how, how I would do it. But actually, I would add this bit as well. And they go, oh, wow, I didn't think about that. And the neurodiversity, I think, is is the way to win. I think hiring smart people is fairly easy. I think hiring high IQ people that can communicate is really hard. They're kind of a unicorn. So it's just making sure that the peaks and troughs in different individuals sort of null out over the team. And so let's jump out, outside of asset management for a moment. What sort of examples are you seeing from corporates, private equity, governments with all this data? It's really interesting. I remember back when the pandemic was mid, I'd say switching from fourth to fifth gear, and some of the low-level, non-important management resource we have, like Azure DevOps, um, was hanging. It was really slow. And they put a message at the top saying, the government's using all of our computes to stop moaning. And I was like, okay, I get that something's being done here. And me trying to find the 75th way to spell Mississippi is not as important as finding a, a cure for coronavirus. So the data sets that I'm seeing predominantly, uh, the PE world I'm not so exposed to, but corporates in general are now wanting to think about what we're thinking about. So it's kind of you know a, a delta on what we're doing. They're concerned with brands. They're concerned with sentiment. And governments in general, again, more around geolocation tracking and around sentiment around ideas. So I think it's still slightly political from what I can see, but they're certainly warming up in this space. I don't think you're going to find a corporate worried about uh, credit card transaction data, but they're almost certainly going to be concerned about their NPS score as calculated by someone that's not them. Jumping back to asset management, I worked in London for a long time. When I started Eagle Alpha, I... I think I spent 70 nights in London the first year um, doing business development. And um, London and the rest of Europe seems further behind, a lot further behind terms of using all this data than the US. Are there any particular reasons that you see having worked for a US firm and now working for a UK firm? Yeah. So I just think that as with anything, sometimes there is a first mover advantage. And I think in some cases there was homogeneity in the people they were selling to in the US. They were interested in the same thing. I think in some cases, the laws were different. And I think they just started first. I wouldn't say the quality of data is different across any of those regions. But I would say that some people have been looking at something for 12 years and some people have been looking at it for six. Naturally, on average, you'd expect the people who spent more time looking at it to be slightly further ahead. But it continues to be a 
US or I'd say North America first, then Europe, then Asia in terms of level of sophistication and the depth of the data. But the quality seems to be roughly the same across all of them. And are you seeing a community build of you and your counterparts in London? So I actually started something called Data Science UK, which was perfectly timed for coronavirus. And by that, I'm completely joking because all the events had to be cancelled. But it was it was a free network for people to hang out and ask questions if they had anything to do data science. It doesn't matter if you are a postman or a politician or a brain surgeon. If you had some something you wanted to learn about data science, come and have a chat. And it, it was obviously predominantly financial professionals initially because that's my network. But there were graduates from my school and from other schools, colleagues coming along. One gent worked in business development for a fintech. He came along to get interested. And it was just a way to stoke up, I'd say, grassroots interest in the field. But the, the network's quite small. As you know, you know, the conferences we all go to, the same people are there. It does get a little bit, uh, I'd say, small pond occasionally, but it's definitely something I would love to pervade further out. Me too. Um, <laughs> so l- looking ahead, Sam, what are two or three predictions you have for the data space? I think that people are going to start focusing as much on tech as they are on data. I think what they've done, in some cases, what people do is they get these huge data sets or these complex or niche data sets. They store it in some form of you know blob or S3 bucket. And they poke around at it, but it doesn't really get pipelined or productionized. And the technologies they're using are either antiquated or they go and spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands on a huge box rather than thinking about how to sensibly build the data pipeline. So I think there's going to be a huge focus on taking the pain out of getting the data loaded, cleansed. You know, if something drops, you can undrop the tables, these sort of really boring architecture problems. I think there's going to be a continued build out with the sort of EU regions catching up with the US a little bit. I think they're going to be a, there's a definite investment across a lot of governments to support and nurture fintechs that may be wanting to take risks. And the US has done that phenomenally well, particularly in San Fran for many years, where they've promoted this culture of take risk, find a solution. I think, you know, London's doing a great job as a hub for Europe, but I think there are other places, Germany, Holland being two of the others. That'll probably be the second item. I think the third one is I think we're still going to see some consolidation. You don't need 12 transaction data sets. So how can you be different? And I think what that means is the vendors need to get smart and start building tooling and solutions and research around their data. They can't just say, here is, an, here is a hose pipe of awesome data. They turn it on and you fill up a room and you realize, work out what to do with it later. They need to start building effective solutions. Not everyone needs a V6 engine. Some people are happy with an electric, so they need to profile those different size consumers and sell products accordingly. Yeah. And for your own team, uh, as you start maybe planning um, for 2021, as we get into Q4, what are some of the sort of the key things that you're thinking about? Is it, is it blending data sets, ESG? What are some of the other big topics that you're focusing in on? Yeah, I think what we want to do is Tech has always been important to the team, but I think that's going to be a reinvigorated focus because what we want to be able to do is have this really efficient pipeline where something is dropped on the conveyor belt and it naturally flows through a system um, without too much you know, idiosyncratic action being required per every data set. And it will be about blending. It's not going to be about going buying three or four really expensive data sets that we hope we get something from. It's going to be understanding the best use of our budget and buying as much orthogonal alpha as we can, rather than just spending one time or one data set for a year. 
and, and of course the nightmare that is reference data we're gonna we're gonna be spending an awful lot of time making sure that that seed is seven digits and that one's six but that one's missing its check digit let's apply some transform to it, it it's going to be the 80 percent of data science which is the cleansing it's, it's going to continue to be the focus again i guess the other thing for the team is we're going to not just focus so much on the investment floor there's going to be a lot of work spent using data science and in some cases data to assist other areas of the business, which could be you know, distribution, marketing, even HR. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So who do you report to, Sam? How does that work? Yes. So my reporting line is to Paul Kay, who's our CTO, but I sit upstairs outside our CIO office, Stephen Pearson. So for all intents and purposes, I'm on the investment floor, but the team sits within technology. And that's kind of one foot in either, either camp, really. If you don't have the technologists on side, you fail. If you don't have the fund managers on side, you fail. So you really need the two camps. They are the, the important groups initially. You single from one your fund managers. And then there are other areas of the business that are incredibly important as well, where we can apply the techniques and tools we've got to assist them as well. And that's what I see a lot more going on in 2021. That's really interesting. I, I, I haven't come across other centralized data teams looking to help outside of the investment teams. Have you heard of that before? No, I've seen a few academic pieces and there's been the odd, we had a data scientist in our team for three months and they solved this problem kind of answers, but no centralized group. Because what I see happening, generally speaking, is you have a centralized team, you create a specialist that say works with marketing and eventually become so important to marketing, they actually move to marketing and they become your central hub. And that's kind of how I see the system working here. But I did, I did read a really, really interesting note that talked about using data to predict when star performers will leave. It literally would say this person left because they were sat under an air conditioning unit or that they figured out why certain people would leave. After comp, the second most common reason was moving house. There's a significant chance when someone moves house, if the commute gets worse, the distance to the office is the metric, they're likely to leave in the next 18 months. So it's having this advanced approach. This individual is a star performer. They've just bought a house in the middle of nowhere. We should suggest they can work from home two days a week. And it's not a problem now, but in, in the old days, that was a uh, yeah. a way of ensuring that people remain. So it's it's applying the data science techniques, less so the data, but more the data science techniques to assisting other areas of the business. Fascinating. Excellent. Sam, thank you so much for taking some time out today. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.